Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Nora Fadila, here, is Assistant Professor of History at the National University of Singapore, where she specializes in the history of the Indian Ocean, Southeast Asia, Islamic law, and mobilities. Her second book project will be on the history of land reclamation in the British Empire. Today we will be discussing her book, Fluid Jurisdictions, Arab Diaspora under Colonial Rule in Southeast Asia, published by Cornell University Press. Dr. Yehair, welcome to the show. Thank you, Shoban. Okay, so to start off, could you give a brief overview of your book, Fluid Jurisdictions? Sure. My book is about colonialism and Islamic law. I look at the Dutch East Indies and British Malaya and Singapore and compare how the British and the Dutch colonialists administered Islamic law. When it came to the Arab diaspora who originated from Hadramaut, which is now in Yemen, across the Indian Ocean. And I basically argue that the Arabs in Southeast Asia allied with the European colonialists to administer their own versions of Islamic law in the colonies in Southeast Asia. Sometimes at the expense of the welfare of fellow Muslims within the region and also sometimes going against Islamic law itself in order to get whatever they wanted at the time. Yeah. I look at how the colonialists differed from one another in the way that they viewed colonial populations. So within the Netherlands Indies, colonial populations were not exalted at all, not regarded highly, oppressed more than their counterparts in the British colonies across the Straits of Malacca, where these colonies were primarily port cities, trading colonies. And so, if you are a rich merchant over there in these British colonies, you would get a certain level of respect from the British who are trying to retain your capital in the colonies. And because of that, the British were more amenable to administer the version of Islamic law that wealthy Arab merchants tried to uh, impose on, on other people, basically. Yeah, whereas the Dutch were, it was more of a plantation colony, and so they regarded these Arabs as commercial rivals, as political rivals, and so on. So could you tell us a little bit more about the geographical space your work covers and what the pluralistic nature of the legal regimes you study allows you to discuss? And you mentioned that um, you're looking at British and Dutch colonies. So could you briefly describe the different types of law that are encountered in your work? I cover a huge geographical space in my work because I look at the Indian Ocean basically spanning from the Middle East to Southeast Asia. So it's, it's almost the entire Indian Ocean. And what I discovered was that there were a lot of different kinds of legal systems and also laws that were in place, some for centuries, and they did not exactly ebb away with the coming of European colonialism. So the period that I'm looking at is the late 19th century and early 20th century, and most historians, there is consensus that this period is known as High Empire. So it's the period where, you know, European colonialism had deepened and become very influential in the places where they had entrenched themselves. And yet, we still see legal systems that were placed for centuries before, different kinds of Islamic law and so on, being adhered to during this period. 
And so they were still competing. These legal systems were still competing with one another for for supremacy. And what happened was that basically with the coming of the British and the Dutch, there were two powerful new players in town which legal actors can appeal to in times of crises and so on. And and so that's what happened. So it's it's almost like the British and the Dutch legal systems entered a a world that was already in place, a world that was already full of competing legal systems. And now they are they became the major players, especially the British, because they also con- control the Indian subcontinent and parts of the Middle East by this point, by the by the interwar period, by the twenties and thirties. So basically they became major players in the region and their ascendance was very much dependent on who regarded them as influential. My point is that it wasn't a given that, you know, because they were powerful, they controlled huge swaths of land and territory across the world by this point, by the early 20th century, that it was a given that they were legitimate as a power. They very much depended on whether they had clients, you know, for, for lack of a better word, amongst colonial subjects who had this plethora of legal systems to choose from and chose them, you know, to a great extent. So that's what I looked at. In writing this book, I wanted to sensitize people into thinking about law in a more complicated way, into looking at colonialism as a complicated phenomenon that wasn't just one way. And that's what I discovered. I discovered that there was a lot to say about colonial law that colonial subjects themselves, even when they did not need to appeal to colonialism or colonial rule or colonial authorities, decided to do so. And that to me is very surprising and quite remarkable and something that I hope future historians will also be sensitive to. So the different kinds of law that I encounter in my work are primarily Islamic law and different versions of Islamic law. Not just in the matter of different schools of law within the Islamic tradition, but also different conceptions of law according to the ethnic community, according to the class that these Muslims belong to, and so on and so forth. It's very particular. It's not universal at all. You know, everyone seems to have their own version of Islamic law. And you can imagine the sense of confusion that this led to and stuff like that. And then I also encountered the different kinds of law that the British and Dutch envisioned. So they had their own systems of law that they, of course, exported throughout empire. And, you know, in terms of civil law, for the British, it would be English common law. And this was what they established all over the world. And in the colonies, there was the Indian Penal Code, of course. And then separately from that, there was also Islamic law which was completely a creature of their own invention called Anglo-Muhammadan law, which is like a mishmash of Indian penal code plus English common law plus Islamic law in some weird way. And it is a classification that I kept in my book and also when I teach, which is called Anglo-Muhammadan law because it is not, it is not exactly Islamic law. Ironically, now several countries in the world inherited this legacy called Anglo-Muhammadan law, but now call it Islamic law today. So that says a lot about the power of this this legal code that the British came out with called Anglo-Muhammadan law. So these are the different types of law that I encountered in my work. It's a lot because, you know, for, for the Netherlands Indies, especially for Indonesia, which is such a huge territory, you know, each island uh, amongst the... 10,000 inhabited islands uh, seems to have their own uh, version of Islamic laws. So the Dutch were mired in a very confusing world because of this. And it is very much in contrast to the British who came up with Anglo-Muhammadan law and universalized it, not just in British India, but also across the empire. These are two colonial powers who are very different in terms of their approach towards Islamic law. You just mentioned... Um, in particular, how confusing the law could be in the Dutch colonies. So I was wondering what methods you use as a historian to capture shifting notions of freedom 
authenticity and sovereignty. So the British, even though they had huge swaths of land and territory by the early 20th century, ruled over half of the population of Muslims in the world, they faced pressure in proving their authenticity when it comes to administering Islamic law, wherever they were. And what they did was to appeal to, to texts. And what was interesting is that by the time they arrived in Malaya and the Swiss settlements, which included Singapore, Penang, and uh, Malacca, part of the part of British Malaya is how I conceive it. They regarded Anglo-Muhammadan law as a as one of these texts. So you know they they placed a lot of importance on the Quran in the past. But by the time they came to Southeast Asia in the 20th century, it seems like Anglo-Muhammadan legal codes that their predecessors produced had the same level of influence and legitimacy in their eyes. Yeah. So they gave a lot of props to themselves in that sense. Yeah. And this was something that they tried to implement in Southeast Asia at the expense of local authorities, so local Muslim authorities, whom they regarded as rivals for influence and power. So there were attempts to call upon, say, local judges, you know, local jurists and judges, local muftis and qadis in the beginning. It was a short-lived experiment. They were like, okay, now no more, because these jurists were were intellectuals in, in themselves and gave very sophisticated answers in courts, you know. And the British judges themselves felt intimidated because they are not able to, of course, uh, match that. And so cut them out entirely. And from 1887 onwards, I did not see any Muslim judge or jurist being, cons- being consulted. And from then on, British judges just confidently, arrogantly, I would say, judged cases on Islamic law. Even complicated cases. Yeah, without consulting anyone. In terms of sovereignty, it was also separate. So sovereignty, authenticity and freedom were completely separate notions under colonial rule. Which is why I separate them out like this in this phrase. It wasn't a given that sovereignty was something that people recognized, you know, in terms of since you are the colonial power, then this land is your land. It's something that both the British and the Dutch had to work for, in a way. And they did so primarily in these parts through Islamic law. And this is what I argue in my book. It's not something that was like separate, like a bonus for Muslims, you know, that they are able to practice Islamic law in terms of personal law, in terms of family law. It wasn't like a, okay, this is your privilege right here, you know, you can do this, even though you're under colonial rule, I grant you this privilege. It wasn't like that. The fact that Muslims were able to practice Islamic law and implement Islamic law in their private lives, in personal law, and actually entrenched, did something active to entrench colonial rule within Southeast Asia. So it wasn't like a session of uh, sovereignty or authority on the part of the colonialists. They actually envisioned Islamic law conceived of Islamic law as something that would deepen colonial rule. They didn't seat authority when they decided to pursue this policy at all. In fact, it was actively doing something to deepen their hold. And one obvious reason why this is the case is because people were very touchy and sensitive about Islamic law and the fact that the British and the Dutch were willing to implement it, uh, make exceptions for personal law, to come under the purview of Islamic law, won some colonial subjects over. So even though, you know, like I say, it was Anglo-Muhammadan law, it was some kind of corruption of Islamic law and stuff like that, and for the Dutch also, there was a lot of misreadings, inaccuracies on the part of Dutch judges, it was still something that the colonialists saw as a win, you know, because the baseline is so low, you know, under colonial rule, of course. And... Thirdly, the notion of freedom is something completely separate because obviously nobody was free. Islamic law was couched within the terms of colonialism and the British and the Dutch, as I said, were actually very, very careful not to cede 
too much power or authority to Muslims and, you know, ensure that property did not fall into the hands of people that they didn't want and stuff like that. So, you know, loss of inheritance, which are so cut and dry in the Quran, is one of the few things regarding Islamic law that are very clear because it's in the Quran. Were cut against, basically, were broken. The British were very much into entail, primogeniture. They were super uncomfortable with the way that the formulae that Islamic laws of inheritance had, have. And they were very uncomfortable with the fact that younger sons inherit. And even worse, in their eyes, they were very uncomfortable with the fact that women, daughters, inherited, inherit. Yeah, they, they were super uncomfortable with that. And they often complain about that. Like, what is this? They should be more like us. You know, once you have property, it goes to, the, to one person, to the eldest son, and that's it. This is just bad. Fragmentation of authority was something that really rankled them, for example. So they tried to impinge on that, but, you know, in the end, they didn't. But there were instances where the Arabs themselves took advantage of this and gave more of their property than they should, going against laws of inheritance explicated in the Quran in line with English common law of inheritance. So that was interesting. Yeah, so they actually used English common law and its limitations to do that. Yeah, to go against whatever that their communities had been doing for ages and ages. Yeah. So in that sense, there there is freedom in that sense, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, that leads into my next question. How does your work complicate understanding of who drives legal change and the process by which law is created? So my book shows that even under oppressive colonial rule, where there was no freedom at all, institutionally, there were opportunities for colonial subjects to drive legal change to a large extent. And this is especially the case for Islamic law. Because Islamic law was something that that Muslims actually practiced, adhered to, to a large extent throughout the world. It was something that was taken very seriously by Muslims in general, even those who do not practice, even those who were not religious. By default, it applies to them. This thing was ironically even made more firm under colonial rule because of the nature of colonial classification, where Muslims automatically fell under Islamic law in the eyes of the colonialists. So even if somebody tries to escape and was like, well, I'm not really Muslim or, you know, stuff like that, or like, one of my parents is Muslim, the other is not, and I chose the other one and stuff like that. If their father, for example, was Muslim, they end up falling under Islamic law, whether they liked it or not. And Islamic law, by default, will apply to them. And this is the case for various, you know, post-colonial nation states today, such as Malaysia. And I see this as a legacy of colonialism, where your identity is fixed. And even if you have a, especially, I would say, if you have a complicated identity, you know, what you call a, for, you know, for lack of a better word, a hybrid identity or something like that. All the more they'll fix you as that. You know, as, as according to, usually according to patriarchal norms. And because of this, because of the two reasons that I just gave, which is that, yeah, I do see a high degree of adherence to Islamic law amongst Muslims, and also this was made more firm under colonial rule. Colonial subjects have a lot of opportunities to drive legal change just because. And this was the case especially in common law jurisdiction where precedents play a large part. So by default, you know, everything that is passed as a judgment by judges would have an effect on later cases. Because it's, it's hard for subsequent judges who deal with similar cases to go against earlier rulings. They could, of course, in theory, but they tended not to due to lack of confidence due to also lack of knowledge on Islamic law. So they tend to abide by whatever that their predecessors had judged on, you know, and uh, so on. For the Netherlands Indies, the Dutch were quite different. Indonesia was, of course, not a common law jurisdiction. So presidents actually do not play such a huge role in judgments. I do see a little bit of that. Of course, judges could exert pressure one another through their judgments and stuff like that and there was a cumulative effect and so on but by and large they were very much localized to a 
crazy degree <laughs> in the sense that uh, uh, you know like one part of java the judge would abide by a system of law which is very different from the other end of this huge island and this is because they abided by something called adat which is translated usually as customary law and customary law in the past used to not be bifurcated at least by muslims into you know islamic law and customary law it used to be one and the same but the dutch bifurcated the two and they of course regarded customary law of indonesians as more ancient of course it is more ancient than islamic law which is of course relatively newer so they prioritized adat more than islamic law and they they already bifurcated the two so it's really artificial they they already did this artificial bifurcation and they prioritized adat over islamic law and adat customary law is of course less you know less uh is more particular is more localized than islamic law so they mired themselves in this legal understanding and they committed themselves to it right up to the colonial period and so a ruling in say solo would be quite different from ruling in in malang or in batavia and you know all the more different from palembang in sumatra which is on a whole other island and in sulawesi and stuff like that so they had localized knowledge they believed and were committed to this hyper legal pluralism in the netherlands indies so that for that yeah it is very complicated because the the judges in a way were the main drivers of legal change more so than the indonesians because the indonesians would appeal to islamic law and adat simultaneously usually or sometimes depending on their religious bent they would appeal more to islamic law rather than adat which has already been bifurcated for them and yet you know because of the way that the dutch saw law over there customary law would be upheld usually more so than islamic law yeah so it's very different in both territories hmm but in both in both territories in both british and dutch territories in south asia legal pluralism was something that was new and here to stay and people had more options now colonial subjects had on paper at least more options to choose from but whether they were allowed to choose x or y at particular times was determined by the colonialists themselves but on paper yeah it seems like they had a they had a plethora of options and in the netherlands indies it was a lot a lot more yeah because your people moved around and you know let's say you move from palembang to jakarta then what would your law be you know because you you move from sumatra to java then is it the law that you carry with you because you are from sumatra or is it the law of the new place that you settled in and that is something that they never figured out so they were constantly unhappy that people were moving around and wished that people would stay put wherever they were but that's not how things work obviously at least not in a watery space like the archipelago yeah what role does family law play in your history My book deals mainly with family law simply because Islamic law was relegated to the realm of family law during this period So family law actually became more prominent for colonial subjects when previously it was just like one of the aspects of their lives but now they guarded it jealously because it was the the sole aspect of their lives that they had control over at least in theory on paper So they concentrated more on family law they policed the boundaries of this sphere more more avidly and it was very stressful because obviously this circle became smaller and smaller and one thing that encroached on the boundaries of family law at least you know in the colonies was property so whenever if something involved property especially landed property What happened was that the colonialists would try to take it out of family law and put it in the realm of civil law and apply normal law as in not religious laws but laws of property common law civil law depending on where they were to that property and this you know obviously property is a huge thing in inheritance which normally by default would lie under family law so under personal law 
therefore religious laws would apply to it. But when vast amounts of property were involved, colonialists saw as possibly colonial property by default, actually. They had this idea that all property was actually by default colonial, and therefore anything involving property had to be looked at, scrutinized more closely, because they see it as like a loss to colonial revenue, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and also colonial infrastructure. So when huge amounts of property were involved, this was especially, especially the case. And this was what happened in the phenomenon of WAQF establishment, W-A-Q-F, which is basically a Muslim endowment, a religious endowment. And a WAQF has, you know, has been around for a thousand years, at least, uh, at this point, and established throughout the Islamic world is very common and there are two kinds of waqfs. One is a public waqf meant for members of the public, so people who are not related to you. And the other is a family waqf, which is basically meant for your relatives. And the British were very much concerned about the latter because they saw it as a sequestering of property forever because a waqf is by default forever escaping taxation and alienation of property such that it cannot be used by the colonial government forever as well. So they were very concerned about this. And cases involving WAPs, which are very much determined by Islamic law ordinarily, were distorted by the application of common law of trusts, which is also very much established in England since the time of Henry VIII. So, that was what happened. So, there are no waqfs which were untouched by common law within the Swiss settlements. And no waqf was allowed to exist forever anymore unless they are public waqfs meant for the general public. And so, the, the judges spent a lot of time passing the terms of waqf deeds to determine whose family and who's not, and so on and so forth. If they sense that the person who established the waqf were trying to trick them into, like, you know, actually this is a family waqf, but they pretended that it's like a public waqf, then the judges would get really angry and make the waqf void. But this was rare. So over time, I realized that, I noticed that even when supposedly family waqfs went against common law of trusts, because they did not, supposedly did not benefit a huge group of, a huge class of people also. The British were more inclined over time, became more and more inclined over time to not render the works as void automatically. And they would try to like modify the works in order to make it viable according to English common law. More increasingly more and more over the early decades of the 20th century. And this is because they wanted to retain these Arabs because they, they had so much money and they didn't want these Arabs to leave with their capital across, move back to Hadramaut where they came from or move to another place. So they wanted to retain the capital and so they tried their best to make these Arabs happy basically. And so that's what happened. Yeah. And these Arabs were very fond of, of establishing works. They established like Close to 90% of the works in the Swiss settlements were established by these Arabs, even though they comprised less than 1% of the population of the Swiss settlements. So it's, it's really remarkable. You know, so they were, their influence was disproportionate. Because they established so many works, their patronage over other Muslims was also disproportionate, if you get my meaning. And so in that sense, you know, works also gives you some kind of a lot of social influence and political influence. And and the, the British saw that, of course, but did not seem to mind. In contrast to the Dutch, who really minded this, they, they were very much uh, against uh, this sort of behavior, and uh, they actually banned warps on paper, at least. But because the Devils Indies was such a huge archipelago, they could not police the establishment of warps. And, you know, so there are a lot of walks which sprung up all over the archipelago, established by everyone, not just Arabs, which escaped the eye of the colonialists. But actually, they were not allowed to exist. Family walks were not allowed to exist. But public walks in the form of mosques, 
schools, you know, madrasas, hospitals, cemeteries, public cemeteries, stuff like that, they were allowed to exist. Yeah. In fact, in a way, you know, they, they provided welfare, social welfare for these colonies and, you know, helped the, the colonial officials, in fact. Yeah. In both British and Dutch territories. Yeah. That's how family law play a role in my book. It was the main purview of Islamic law and except for when it came to property and that was a huge section obviously of, of family law property because of inheritance and so on. Yeah. How does forum shopping work mm. as a legal weapon? And could you give an example or two from your book of attempts mm. at legal arbitrage mm. that appear in your book? So forum shopping is something that was a very disturbing phenomenon in my book. It wasn't just like someone who was able to, you know, have an array of choices presented to them under colonial rule. Simply because under colonial rule, nothing was equal. So they were living under a system of oppression and yet they had options. It creates a somewhat toxic environment in the end. And what happens was that over time, I could see that these Arabs were using forum shopping as a way to cut out other sections of society. So one thing that emerged during this period is colonial subjects were classified according to ethnicity and religion. So it depends on where they were, which is the primary marker of identity. In the British settlements and, and Malaya to some extent, it was religion. So all Muslims were classified more or less as the same, you know, under one heading, simply because Anglo-Muhammadan law applied to all Muslims from a British bureaucratic administrative point of view. That's what they were interested in. They were very practical. Whereas for the Dutch, it was race and ethnicity. And it was hugely complicated because first of all, nothing was fixed. No one's race and ethnicity was fixed, right? And so they had to come up with their systems of classification and they ran into a lot of trouble because so many people are mixed. Previously, they were not mixed. Previously, they were just like themselves. But then once this kicked in, the system of classification, they realized that they were mixed. So it's very, it's very interesting. It's like, you know, you might marry someone who's not of the same ethnicity as you. And you're just like, yeah, you know, in Islam, it's completely, it's not an issue and stuff like that. And you're just doing what your ancestors had been doing for ages and ages. But suddenly, in 1901, you realize that you had a mixed marriage. You know, your, your marriage is actually a mixed marriage. So this notion of mixed marriage is completely new and people had no conception of it beforehand and stuff like that. So from a legal perspective, it matters a lot. So like, you know, the, the fact that one's child is half this and half that and so what is what is he or she you know and, and things like that so it's very hugely complicated and previously he was just that child is just a, a muslim child or you know a indonesian or something like that or, or you know someone living in java and just be javanese and stuff like that or, and uh, yeah but now that child is actually half javanese half chinese or half javanese half arab and that is something that had traction in the eyes of the, the Dutch. And in terms of legal classification, had repercussions, in fact. So what, what is he? What kind of property can they hold? You know, and stuff like that. And this was more complicated in the Dutch East Indies because not all societies within the archipelago and also, in fact, in, in the Straits Settlements and British Malaya were patriarchal. So once the, the Dutch committed to upholding, recognizing the laws of different peoples, they actually ran into trouble when it came to people who were who came from two different cultures. From people who came from matriarchal culture and patriarchal culture. And they had trouble with that. Yeah, so like, you know, usually in the past, there used to be consensus within the family, so it's privately done, as to which culture, which law they should abide by in their private lives. But now, the Dutch were the ones who determined it. And so they, they grappled with that. They struggled with that. And, you know, there's no such thing as, as like, 
oh, this is the family consensus. It's not determined by the families anymore. It's determined by the Dutch. You know, so so the Dutch ran into a lot of trouble because they committed to this. Yeah. Yeah, back to forum shopping. So what happened was that in the British Strait Settlements, especially in the British Strait Settlements, the Arabs managed to get the British to do their bidding, basically, which is what I I explored in uh, Chapter 1, where they were the ones who actually pushed the British to uh, administer Islamic law at the expense of the authority of local jurists and judges. So basically, it's, you know, it's, it creates a very uncomfortable situation when you read about it because it is a story of how one section, in fact, the minorities actually, because they are like less than 1%, influenced the way Islamic law was administered in the region forever in order to get what they wanted once upon a time, you know, 130 years ago. Yeah. And cut out the authority of local Muslims. So it became more about race, if you sense my meaning, than religion. Because, you know, the the Arabs did say, well, you know, they are, you know, we are Arabs and we come from Arabia and some of us are even descendants of the Prophet. And by default, you know, we know, therefore, you know, we know Islamic law more than the Southeast Asian Muslims or South Asian Muslims, of which there are diasporas here as well. So, the group became fractured in this very real way. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it has an ugly complexion to it because they appealed to the oppressor. You know, they appealed to non-Muslim colonial authorities whose interests are, of course, not, you know, nothing to do with Islam. It's all profitability. And they, they appealed to these, to the oppressor to oppress other <laughs> Muslims, if you know what I mean. And it did not go according to plan for them either in the end. You know, they they were also cut out in the end, which is not surprising to us. <laughs> I mean, as we are reading this, we, we are not surprised. But at the time, they did not know that, obviously, and so pursued this policy. Yeah. And they tried, the Arabs of the Netherlands Indies also tried, but they were working on a different scale, obviously, because the Netherlands Indies is so huge. And super diverse, you know, they were not all port cities, obviously. So they were, it was very diverse. And the, the Indonesian political authorities, such as the, the Javanese sultanates and stuff like that, royalty, they were still very much influential within the Netherlands Indies. I mean, they, their power was very much curtailed and limited by this point, but they still had social capital, a lot of social capital which could be translated into political capitals at certain junctures in Indonesian history. So they, these Arabs were working on a different scale. They had to contend with the Dutch all over the archipelago, and they had to contend with different Indonesians. They had to contend with Indonesians who were still politically powerful and stuff like that. So it's very different over there. And as I said to you before, the Dutch were not pro-Arab at all. They regarded these Arabs as rivals politically, economically, and socially. So they were not amenable to their demands. So that was what happened over there. The Arabs did not manage to become ascendant, did not did not manage to become influential. Not like they did in the British Strait Settlements. Yeah. And so they used forum shopping, you know, because there's a new powerful player in town, the British and the Dutch, to get what they wanted. So one thing that happened which was very interesting, and this brings a different complexion to the term forum shopping a less sordid uh, complexion to it, is that women were able to get what they wanted through forum shopping sometimes. So what happened throughout Southeast Asia was that women who wanted to marry someone of their own choosing could not easily do so if they abided by their school of law, which is the Shafi'i school of law, which is what the Hadramis, these Arabs, and most Southeast Asian Muslims abided by. So what they did was that they converted to another school of law, which is the Hanafi school of law. So if a woman has not been married before, ever in their lives, they needed the permission of their 
guardian to marry. So their father, or if their father had passed, their eldest uncle, if the eldest uncle had passed, their eldest brother, and stuff like that. And when families disagree with their choice of partners, it was possible for them to convert to Hanafi law, uh, Hanafi school of law, more easily under colonial rule, it seems. Because they could appeal to another authority. So, you know, in the past, they still could do that. But it was harder because Muslim legal authorities will be someone who, who knows that this is very insincere. <laughs> you know, it's like a event-specific conversion. You know what I mean? So, it's not sincere. It's not like they were moved by Hanafi law or something like that. You know what I mean? And so, would not would likely not be allowed to do so easily. Yeah. Whereas, when it came to British judges they were more than happy to accede to the demands of these women. They were like, oh yeah, you know, but you want to convert? Yeah, it's fine, because it's, according to Islamic law, it's allowed. So it's like, so I recognize your conversion to Hanafi law. And as a bonus, at least for the for British territory, the British were more well-versed in Hanafi law. Blue Muhammadan law, which they devised in British India, was based on Hanafi law. So all the more, they're like, okay, now that you're Hanafi, I know what to do. Before, when you were Shafi'i, I had to learn another set of laws. And they were really intimidated by everything. You know what I mean? They were intimidated by all things Islamic law. Because obviously, they were not well-versed in Islamic law. So once they converted to Hanafi law, Anglo-Muhammadan law could apply wholesale to these women, if you know what I mean. And that's what they were comfortable with. They were like, oh yes, now, you know, now you're talking, basically. <laughs> and and uh, and that's what happened in the 1880s and up till, from what I can see, up till the first decade of the 20th century. After that, the, the legal record is either incomplete or this trend disappeared. I don't know. Yeah. So that's one, that's one form of forum shopping that emerged during the colonial rule because British judges had different takes. And were not, of course, invested in uh, in the lives of Muslim women in the same way that Muslim men were. Yeah. So there is the form of legal arbitrage that I was talking about. The other thing, the other, the the last form of the second form, the second and last form of legal arbitrage that I talked about in my book is about the wakf. Now this was hugely complicated, more so than the the, the marriage one that, that I just gave you. The marriage example that I just gave you. Because it involved entire clans, entire families. And so here we see a lot of family drama. So there are a lot of people who, because you know, over time, the dividend that you get from the wakf, if you are a clan member, member of the clan, gets less and less over the years. So by now, you know, they will get like $22 a year, which is, which is nothing, right? And so, if the wakf is declared void by authorities, by legal authorities, now, you know, it's by Malaysian authorities or Singaporean authorities, but in the past, of course, it used to be the British, and there is a chance that the British would declare the wakf void, because they are also, like, uncomfortable with this sequestering of property forever, escaping taxation revenue forever, you know? They would have to sell the property, and the property by now is worth tens of millions, you know, and and so each person will get like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and stuff like that, right? And get like a windfall, and so that's what some people want and wanted in the past, if you know what I mean. Not surprisingly, but of course this goes against Islamic law because in Islamic law you're supposed to respect the wishes of the testator. It's actually a sin to go against them. Blah 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 blah. So there, there are always different camps. Some camps are like secretly hoping that the war will be void. Some camps actively seek it. So they will go to court and challenge the war in the hope that it will be declared void. And some people are of course think that it's wrong, you know, and so we'll just keep it. We'll just preserve the war and just take the $22 per year and stuff like that. So that is a form of legal arbitration as well because they are trying to bring it out of Islamic law. They're trying to begin out the realm of Islamic law. So after independence, after the British left, it came back into the realm of Islamic law somewhat. But, but that also meant that your chances of selling the land is less because they will never be sold according to Islamic law. It will just die out. It will just be like, you know, 
one day you'll get no money and that is when something would happen to the wealth. Naturally, like that. Yeah. But, you know, so that there are all these things that, that happen and that is also for legal arbitrage because they're trying to bring it into the realm of common law. Some people are trying to bring it away from the purview of Islamic law. Yeah. In the hope that they will get this material windfall, basically. Yeah. It's a big question, but what does your book tell us about writing and power? My book tells the story of how writing is power. Writing was power during the colonial period even. So even under oppressive colonial rule, colonial judges, colonial administrators, you know, all government administrators had to pay attention to what colonial subjects wrote all the time. So if they write a will, they have to pay attention to the will, right? If the colonial subjects prepare a will, they have to read the will and abide by the terms of the will. If they produced a waqf deed, then they would have to abide by the terms of the waqf, try their best to do so. Anytime they want to set aside a waqf, they had to reason through it. So they had to reason through English common law. And sure, you know, you might think that it's it's a dismissal in the end, right? Practically speaking. But it's actually not. Because it's not an outright dismissal at all. Because the judges had to reason through English common law and Islamic law to to do so. They, they spent a lot of time and, and, and energy um, studying Islamic law and so on and so forth. So writing is power on that very level. That the colonial subjects made the colonialists listened to them, at least for a moment, through the production of these documents. And amongst the Arab diaspora, these documents proliferated. Firstly, it's because they were a diasporic population and kept on crisscrossing the Indian Ocean. They also went you know, back and forth from Hadramaut to Southeast Asia and so on and so forth. They often bequeathed their sons and their brothers' power to administer their property. So that's the second thing, which is the powers of attorney. The powers of attorney were a very common legal device throughout the world. In every legal tradition, there is something called a power of attorney. And being a diaspora, the Arab diaspora in Southeast Asia relied heavily on it. Even within the, the region, even within Southeast Asia, they often lived quite far away. You know, they might be based in Singapore, but they have property in Batavia and so on and so forth. And they can't make that journey so easily back in the day. It takes several days, you know, to sail from Singapore to Batavia. So they would transfer power to their attorney, basically. Their attorney would be someone who is who was usually their relatives or a business partner and so on and so forth. The most common form of power of attorney that I saw was between people who are based in Hadramaut in Yemen to their brethren or their business partners in Southeast Asia. Because that is where capital is. That is where capital was, if you know what I mean. The capital was not in Hadramaut. They often transferred it back there and built houses and roads and infrastructure over there from the capital that they amassed in and built up on the other end of the Indian Ocean in Southeast Asia. And one thing that I saw also, which is quite, which was quite disturbing, is that women often transferred powers to their attorneys in Southeast Asia, like a lot. You know what I mean? Like it happens all the time. It happens all the time, and that caused me some anxiety. But I do realize that these women retained power because. Once they see that their representative is corrupt or skimming too much from the top, so to speak, you know, let more than 5% or something like that, or like uh, mismanaging their property and so on, they will revoke authority and appoint another person. So in that sense, they retain the power and was expected also to retain the power such that the representative could not transfer power by themselves. They had to rely on whoever granted them the power to do so. So they couldn't transfer authority to another representative just like that. 
as you can imagine, it created a whole mess because sometimes the women were not aware or, you know, like the telegram did not reach them soon enough and something required attention immediately. And uh, so, yeah, it created it, it created a whole mess basically because of that time lag and distance lag and stuff like that. But by and large, yeah, you know, when you look at it from the agency of women, from the perspective of women's agency, they retained the power. And it was up to them to transfer one person to another, up to them to monitor the actions of their representatives and stuff like that. Yeah, so that's something that should also be taken into account, that women actually relied on writing more so proportionally than men. And this was because they were less likely to be out and about. So even if they were business women and there were so many in Southeast Asia, amongst the Arab population especially, they did so through writing. They did not see writing as like a lesser form of power. You know, because it wasn't the case in, in Islam that that was the case, if you know what I mean. But yeah, in terms of like public perception, it was the case. Like if you're not there, there's a sense that maybe you don't have power. And the fact that, you know, me as, say, a, a Dutch judge or Dutch official, right, a bureaucrat sitting in an office somewhere in City Hall, is dealing with your male representative, I might have the idea that this male representative before me is the one calling all the shots, just because. And also because of, you know, perception of male power, obviously. Yeah, by default, right, the, the default perception. So, yeah, so there's, there's that. But actually, from their perspective, especially of these women, and from the perspective of law as well, whatever that was written has a lot of traction, has a lot of power, and, you know, just as much, and sometimes even more, because of accountability and the notion of authenticity attached to documents, attached to documentary evidence. Yeah. So, that's what I described in my book about how writing is power and how it actually helped women more and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Well, thank you. I, re- I really had a good time talking to you.